All you old timers, do you remember a program called Paladin? Have gun, will travel? Not very many old timers around here anymore. A couple of us, yeah. Well, I, I have this have pulpit, will travel. But the pulpit is a music stand. I had a really, really profound thought this morning on the way to work. How many of you have, or, and are willing to admit it, how many of you have tried to get a mosquito in your car while you're driving and almost had an accident? Man, I almost hit a guy this week. Scared me. And I'll bet you there's been a lot of accidents because of mosquitoes and flies uh, through the years. Did uh, these get handed out this morning, the outlines? Okay, good. We are clear to the ninth and 10th chapter of the book of Nehemiah this morning. (coughs) I've, uh, as you have, have probably heard stories of people who, just short of retirement, lost their job and with it, their retirement. Just before they were vested, they were fired. The word vested means locked in or secure. That's true of retirements, but what about values? Those of you, again, who are old-timers, my age and older, I'm 47, (laughs) those of you in such condition... Well, remember a time when America had a shared value system which was pretty much universally understood. That America no longer exists. As much as I did not like it when President Obama said we are no longer a Christian nation, he was right. We aren't. It's reflected in some of our institutions. But by and large, we are no longer a Christian nation. What once was scandalous is now acceptable and in many instances encouraged and protected by law. What happened? Values must never be assumed. Each generation must reaffirm its values or those values will be lost as they have been in America by and large today. And that is why Nehemiah and the people in Jerusalem made special effort to vest their values. Chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. And this follows last week's Watergate revival in chapter 8, where the people came to terms with their apathy and their apostasy, and, and a great time of repentance and worship followed. This follows that. On the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting, in sackcloth, and with dust on their heads. Then those of Israel lineage separated themselves 
from all the foreigners, and they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for one-fourth of a day, <clears throat> and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Then Joshua, Bani, and a number of other uh, Levites cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And the Le- these Levites said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven and the heavens of heavens with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve or uphold them all. The host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram. And then he goes into a long history. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look at this scripture today, we would be challenged, that we would be exhorted, and that we would truly look and see, are our values your values? Have they slipped? Do they need to be reaffirmed? Is there change that needs to place in our life? Is there repentance that needs to happen as we seek to walk on fruitfully in relationship with you? Lord, as I speak this morning, if there's a hundred people here, there's a hundred different grids through which the spoken word will be processed. And so I pray, Heavenly Father, that by the enabling power of the Holy Spirit, you sovereignly and uniquely in each individual life will apply your truth to our hearts. Be our teacher, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, just kind of loosely follow with me as I go through this text. Verse 7 says, as they are praying and confessing their sins and so on, he gives the foundation of, of, of all of this. Verse 7, you are the Lord God who chose Abraham. Verse 9, you saw our afflictions in the fathers in Egypt. Um, verse 12, you led them by day with a cloud of pillar and, and by night by a pillar of fire. At Mount Sinai, verse 13, you spoke to them from heaven. During this time, verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven, manna, and water from the rock. Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted proudly. They hardened their necks, and they did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders. Verse 18 begins, they made a a golden calf and worshipped that. They gave the calf credit for what God had done. And for 40 years, verse 21, you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor their feet did not swell, and on and on and on. Verse 26, in light of all that you did for them, nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. As a consequence, you delivered them to the hand of their enemy. Verse 28, but after that, They again did evil before you. Therefore, you left them in the hand of their enemies. 
And even then, with that kind of discipline, verse 29, you testified against them that you might bring them back to your law, yet they acted proudly. Uh, I'll read on there in verse 29. At the end of verse 29, they shrugged their shoulders, stiffened their necks, and would not hear. Verse 32. Now they're in this point of repentance before the Lord. Now therefore our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy, do let not do not let all the trouble seen seem small before you that has come upon us, our kings and our prophets, our priests and our prophets, our fathers and in all your people, from the days of the kings, even the kings of Assyria until this day. Verse 36, here we are at this moment, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty, here we are, servants in it, not of God, but servants of the Assyrian kings. They had been restored to their land, but they were under still the, the dominion of those who, have been, who led them captive. Verse 37, and it yields much increase to the kings, not to us, but to the kings, and you have set over, that you have set over us because of our sins. Also, they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of this, verse 38, as we come before you, as we come humbly and in humility and repentance, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders our Levites, and our priests seal it. <clears throat> what we have here in the book of Nehemiah is a, a pause. This week was uh, uh, the all-star game. I doubt that Justin was able to be there. I was told he has six more games to attend before he's back. The All-Star Game is a break in the midst of 2,592 regular season games. I did that calculation this morning. I divided the teams in half. There are 32 teams. That means half of 32 is 16. They play 182 games through the season. And when every time the team plays a game, they're playing somebody else, so you have to cut it in half. I multiplied that out, 2,592 regular season games. In the midst of those games, there is a break. It's called the All-Star Game. And in the midst of every game, there is a seventh inning stretch in which we all stand and sing, Take me out to the ball game. How many of you have attended? I thought so. It's fun. I enjoy doing that. My grandfather, uh, oh, about eight years ago, and I was, just before the game started, I went up to Souvenir Ball. You buy it for $100. No, it's, it, they're expensive. I bought one, and when I came back, he had one. He got a foul ball while I was gone, and I didn't get to see that happen. Now, chapters 1 through 7 are a record of the reconstruction of the walls of Jerusalem. 
They went through great tribulation, great trial, great opposition, both within and without. And through it all, under Nehemiah's leadership, they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem in 52 you get to the last verse of chapter 7, it says, All Israel dwelt in their cities. There was a big sigh of relief. But Nehemiah didn't stop there. He brought the, the Watergate revival uh, in chapter 8, and now here in chapter 9 and 10, we're having this process of vesting values. In chapter 8, verse 13, it talks about the and following. The, the Levites showed the people the sense. They helped them understand as the reading of the word of God was given. A word of God that was devoid of their understanding. They'd been without the word of God. And when they heard it, they repented deeply. Now, that repentance was a response of the heart. And the most important thing when it comes to any value in Scripture is certainly the truth of the, of the value. But the response of the heart is what is absolutely critical. One of my favorite books of the Bible are First and Second Chronicles. In Second Chronicles, chapter 25, we read about King Ahaziah, Amaziah. King Amaziah, chapter 25, verse 2. Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king. He reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. And then this commentary is added. But he didn't do it with a loyal heart. His heart wasn't really in it. He did what was right, but not from a good heart. Maybe it was because he feared judgment or something. I don't know why. But reading forward a few pages in 2 Chronicles chapter 31, verse 20, is King Hezekiah, good King Hezekiah. Thus Hezekiah did through all Judah. He did what was good and right and true before the Lord his God. Verse 21. <clears throat> and in every work that he began in the service of the Lord of the excuse me, in the service of the house of God, in the law and in the commandments to seek his God, he did it with all his heart. And then it goes on to say this commentary, so he prospered. I just need to say a word about prosperity. When we hear the word prosper, we immediately think cars and houses and jewelry and adult toys and a fat bank account. And that all has absolutely nothing to do with prospering. Prospering is coming to a place and a walk with the Lord where there's confidence, where there's peace, where there's contentedness instead of discontent, a 
grateful spirit instead of a complaining spirit. Prospering comes. The door to prosper, prosper, prospering is obedience from a whole heart. Brings prosperity. And that was Hezekiah. When we're talking about values, the heart of the matter is the heart. Nehemiah didn't want to gain all this ground just to lose it, as frequently happens. So, in an effort to establish vested values, three things were done. Number one, they began with an honest spiritual inventory. In the blue book of Alcoholic Anonymous, there is a 12-step program that is the foundation of all that they do. The fourth step states, we will make a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Change begins with being rigorously honest with ourselves. And that's what Nehemiah was leading the people to in this text. This, in essence, is what they did. And it led, first of all, to a contrite consensus. The children of Israel were assembled with... Please excuse me, I'm in the fourth week of whatever it is. The thing's gone, but the residual is still there, and I'll probably cough a few times. (coughs) They were assembling with fasting and sackcloth dust on their heads. Their repentance was sincere, it was honest, that's how they showed repentance in those days. They looked in the mirror and they responded honestly, because what they saw in the mirror wasn't good. And they stood up and read from the book most of the day for seven days. They continued to to submit themselves to the scrutiny of God's word. As I said last week, the word of God is the only book that I do not evaluate. It evaluates me. Romans, Romans, Hebrews 4.12 says, the word of God is sharper than a two-edged sword, and it's a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. And James referred to it as the, the perfect law of liberty. We look in it, and we go our way, <coughs> and it reveals those things in our heart that need to be dealt with. In the service at the Kenai, they challenged all the young people, especially, who were there. If you want God to to truly uh, do great things in your life, I challenge them every day to spend time quietly before the Lord with an open heart, with an open book, reading that book and asking God to speak his truth into your heart. You do that, and he will. And if you're consistent in that, it will revolutionize your life over time. Guaranteed. It all begins with a, with a, with a heart right, with a right heart. <clears throat> you do that, and your life will be changed ir- irre- irreversibly. <clears throat> for three hours, they stood and listened to the reading of the book. Then for three more hours, there was corporate confession for a fourth of the day. <clears throat> I want to stop right here. 
<clears throat> this is where they were. They'd had their revival. They had spent this time before the Word of God and they had repented. This was all new to them, the, the truths of God's Word. And boy, it, it sunk home and they, they were repented. How many times have we individually come to that place in our life where God shows us where we've messed up and we say, wow, this is not pretty. We, we face it. Or there's, there's genuine heartfelt repentance and say, I'm sorry, Lord. Thank you for your forgiveness. Help me as I go on. That's the sincere conviction of the moment. But how many times? An hour later? A day later? A week later? A month? A year? We've completely forgotten. We've gone our way as if we were never brought. They soon forgot. We soon forget. In chapter 9, verse 38, because of this, because Nehemiah did not want this to happen, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites, and our priests seal it. From doing a ruthlessly honest spiritual inventory, they went to driving stakes of intent that this would not all be lost. This was a literary stake of intent. It was a covenant that they signed. Life memorials, life stakes that we drive down are important. One of the reasons, there are other reasons that I do not have an electronic Bible. Uh, I'm not into electronics. Uh, Lisa can tell you that. Thank you, Lisa, for making me able to survive in an electronic world. But I have a written book. <clears throat> I have four just like this one in my office. A Bible lasts me about 12 years, more or less. <clears throat> and every once in a while, occasionally, I will go back to the first one, which was when I was in my teen years and early 20s, and then to the next one, and the next one, and the next one, and then to this one. And I go through, and on the leaves of my Bible, there are little notes from time to time. <clears throat> spoke to me about something. And it reminds me of a, of a time that I spent with the Lord, of a commitment that I perhaps made. It's that stake of intent that is indelibly imprinted in a, in a record. That's important. The Israelites had uh, seven feasts each year that were reminders to them of commitments in another month, actually in three weeks, we're going to be leaving to Washington to go to our family reunion. <coughs> it's a biannual reunion. And it's always held at Camp Clear Lake, at Grace Brethren Camp on Clear Lake in Washington. We're going to cross the lake to Camp Dudley. The, um, because there, the ground is flat. And the facilities are better. Why, why are we concerned about flat ground, you suppose? Well, I have an uncle who's 98. My mom will soon be 96 and on down. And we need so we can get around.
But I planned to go across the lake, go to the fire pit, where at age 14, a stick that we were all given, representing our life, and I threw that stick into the light, into the fire, the fire, life, consuming my life, but it was going to be consumed to the glory of God. I go back there every two years to remind myself of the commitment that I made. Something about the tangible physicalness of having that stick and saying, I am sincere, Lord, when I say this is my commitment. And that is a reminder to me. And that's what this covenant was here in verse 30, 38. It did two things. It declared themselves. They were going public. They wrote it down. It's one thing to state a desire or a goal. It is another to write it and make it measurable. It's what distinguishes between a commitment and merely good intentions. You know those New Year's resolutions that you make, but you don't write them down because you might have to think about them again. The difference between commitment and good intentions is going public with a commitment. <clears throat> In my life, this has been very important. It's one thing to have feelings and good intentions and to talk about in my life, the, the big one was going to Anchorage to plant a church. There was nobody there except Debbie Floyd's parents. And then quickly, Debbie and her husband. Uh, we didn't have a, a lot of people to... Uh, by the way, hi Debbie. Hi. Glad to have you here this morning. And your parents, Helen and... Great uh, church planners. You've been involved in a lot of church planning. Anyway, it was scary. It was just downright scary. I could talk about it all day. First step out on the limb of faith and made myself accountable. It wasn't until then that it be truly. My cutting in and out, is that my problem or yours? It's not yours either, it's the equipment. Okay. I'll talk as loud as I need to when I sense it's cutting out. <clears throat> in the case of the Jews in Jerusalem at this occasion, <clears throat> they said it, they wrote it, and then they signed it. They deeded themselves. Commitments, folks, are hard to make. I've done some research in the um, culture of America, and all the research I have found says that from the baby boomer generation on down, that is everybody who is 68 years of age or younger, commitments do not come easy, and they become, and they come Rarely. We see that in terms of church membership. We certainly see it in terms of commitment to marriage. The last thing I read is that the average person today in our culture gets those who do get married, marry with the idea that within seven years 
they will be divorced. Commitment. Through the years, I've only ever refused to marry one or two couples. And one was a slope worker who was in his mid-30s who dated a girl that was briefly attending our church, young young lady in her early, early 20s, who was a virgin. After meeting him, she was no longer a virgin. And so she felt she really needed to marry him. A week before, two weeks before the wedding, in our last counseling session, it came out that he wanted a prenuptial agreement Now, he didn't have kids to protect. He was simply selfish, assuming that the marriage would only last a short time. And when it was over, he wanted all the goodies. He didn't want her to have anything. A prenuptial agreement for somebody my age getting married and wanting to preserve my assets and the other person their assets for their children, understand that. This was just pure greed and selfishness. And I turned to the girl and I said, did you hear what he just said? I said, how do you feel about that? You go home, think about it, and we'll get together next week. We got together next week. I said, what have you decided? He said, I'm not going to go through with the wedding. And I said, good. And I turned to him and said, had she been willing to go through with it, I wouldn't have done it. I said, you're just flat, crass, and selfish. Oh, did I make him mad. I was honest. And he knew it. I never saw her again after that meeting for three years, three or four years. And I ran into her at a store one day. And I I went up to her and I called her by name. And I said, how do you feel about what happened? And she broke down and began to weep. And said, thank you, thank you, thank you for confronting that issue at that moment in time. He wasn't willing to make a commitment with his whole person and all of his assets. Commitments are hard And they should be, if they're going to last. Probably I have shared this experience with you before. On my wedding night, as I stood at the door that would usher me out to the stage where my bride would walk down the aisle, my face turned white and I almost passed out. But as I reflected upon it, I recognized I understood the significance and the seriousness of the commitment I was making. I was voluntarily placing limitations upon myself and making a commitment that would last until one of us died. And with the contingencies of life, It was never. It was. Only 
whatever it was. Commitments should be hard, but they need to be made when it's appropriate, and it's certainly appropriate in this, with our spiritual lives before the Lord. Once the spiritual inventory is taken, once the stakes are driven deep, the story doesn't end there, it's just the beginning. That's developing sustained initiative. Nobody ever said life would be easy. And I think we could learn much from God's creation. The geese who fly several thousand miles from the Arctic to the near tropics and back year after year against great odds. In Alaska, we understand the migration of the salmon. The salmon gets by the sea lion. Then he has to dodge all the seals. Then the drift netters then the set netters, then the dip netters, then the fishermen, then the brown bear, before they face the falls that they have to jump over to get finally to the promised land. One thing I have come to learn as an adult is that life isn't easy. The Christian life isn't easy. Marriage isn't easy. There has to be a lot of investment in all of the above. I think sometimes because we're so diligent to teach that salvation is a gift by God's grace that we transfer all responsibility for doing aside. We must be Excuse me, we must as believers rely on God's enabling power for Christ's life to be lived through us. But that doesn't mean that we are to put the gear shift into neutral. There are responsibilities, there is effort, there is investment, there is obedience, there is spending time with the Lord that we might know Him. And so, know his ways. I see three things here that apply to this. The first is submitting to God's word. Now the rest of the people join together to observe and to do all the commandments and the statutes. This is, first of all, an attitude or a choice. And then it becomes actions. Might be as simple as, guys, loving your wife obediently, kids obeying your parents, submitting to governing authorities, all the instructions of Scripture, praying without ceasing, rejoicing evermore, giving of the first fruits of our increase, in everything giving thanks. As we open this door of obedience, the Lord prospers our lives, as we defined it earlier. I was preaching recently in the 16th, 17th chapter, 15th of Exodus, and it says there how that the, that the people of Israel tempted the Lord in the wilderness, and the Lord had to discipline them. Now I say, how did they tempt the Lord? And I studied that passage real carefully. It, it says that they were involved in idolatry. They became involved with pagan wives. They 
committed sexual immorality, all of those things were, were, were judged or disciplined for them. But the central thing throughout that whole text, over and over it, it appears, how did they tempt the Lord? Through an ungrateful spirit and discontent, and so they murmured and complained and grouched. In the very presence of these incredible miracles of the deliverance across the Red Sea, of God himself coming down upon Mount Sinai, of the visible pillar of fire at night in the cloud during the day, of the manna and the quail that were provided, water coming from the rock. The rock that followed them was that rock Christ Jesus, supernaturally caring for them. And they complained. It wasn't good enough. And they murmured. And that's how they tested the Lord. And that was the one thing that God really got on them for. Yeah, the adultery and the idolatry and all of that, but it was their attitude. That discontent, that unwillingness to believe and obey in an attitude that was pure of heart. They submitted to God's word with a whole heart. And the second thing I see here was their separation from the world. Verse 30 we would, we would not give our daughters as wives to the peoples of the land, nor take their daughters as our sons. If the peoples of the land brought wares or any grain to sell on the Sabbath day, we would not buy it from them on the Sabbath or on the holy day. And we would forego the seventh year's produce, observing Sabbath for the land, and, exacting, and the exacting or the forgiveness of debt. These were all requirements under the Old Testament law. <clears throat> and to the Jew in Nehemiah's day, separation meant to be a distinct people. God's chosen people who were set apart to uniquely reflect God's design for living and as such to be a reflection of God's holiness and his glory. So what's different today? Not much. We're no longer under the Old Testament laws and regulations, but we are, in the New Testament, His chosen people. Just as the children of Israel were God's chosen people, so in the New Testament we are told that we are His chosen people. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, We are a chosen people, a holy nation, God's purchased possession that we might display the glories of the God who chose us. We are unique. We are totally different from the world. We are a new creation in Christ, adopted as sons, joint heirs with Jesus. We have eternal life. We've been forgiven. We're sons of God. We're children of God, and on and on and on and on. If you were accused, out on the job or wherever, if you were accused of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? 
Do we, we are different. Do we live so? Do we reflect the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, the washing of the water of the word? Or do we try to fit in, laugh at the dirty jokes, snicker at the immoral comments, etc., etc.? I thrill at being different because there's a reason why I am. Me opportunity to tell people why from time to time in knowing that I'm different. I don't want to be like the world. The third thing I see that's reflected here was the glory, or excuse me, the support of God's word. For them, God's work. For them it meant obedience in maintaining the temple worship. Another way of saying this is that they were committed to the work of the Lord. And this meant three things in verse 32. They agreed to the tithe. Verse 34 through 38, it was the ministry of the Levites and the Aaron, uh, the, 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 the priests to support the work of the temple. And their motivation, verse 39, the last part of it, last phrase, we will not neglect the house of our God. They were committed to the work of the Lord, and that's what it meant for them in that day. I have long, long since learned that a person's level of commitment to anything is ultimately determined by their level of investment in it. Jesus said the exact same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If your investment in anything, in your certainly in your church, if there's little investment, it reflects the of a heart that's not in it. If your heart's in it, your treasure will be there too. How's that for a sermon on giving? <clears throat> I, I look at my dad. i got to quit here. But I, I look at my dad. Growing up, <clears throat> my dad was a quiet man. He served the Lord by doing. He would have been terrified to have to stand up in front of anybody and even read Scripture. He just, that's just the kind of a person he was. He was not one of the leader types. Uh, it wasn't through what he said. It's, he served through what he did. And for 18 years... While I lived in that house, my dad never taught me to give, but he did. Because every Sunday morning, he went over to the roll-top desk, rolled it up, grabbed a checkbook, and wrote a check. I have no idea how much it was. Never missed a Sunday. That's what he did. And in so doing, he taught me the importance of giving. He did something else. My dad was a dirt farmer and cattle rancher. He worked from Kansas to Kansas, seven days a week. He took a couple hours out to go to church on Sundays. Busy man. One thing we learned about cattle, they never go on vacation. They're hungry on Sundays just like any other day of the week. But when I would get up at 7, my dad would be up at 4.30, go out to feed the cattle, and then come back in for breakfast at 7. But I noticed there was an open Bible in the chair where he sat. He never taught, told me I needed to read the Bible. 
but he taught me to by his example. That's where his heart was. His treasure was where his heart was. And my dad was in his mid to late 70s. He finally had time to do something besides feed cattle and irrigate. He was seen on his hands and knees, flat out on the ground, in the Awana circle, wrestling with the kids. He had time to invest his life now. And I remember one time, Dad was now in his 80s, and Sherry and I were home visiting, and Dad got a phone call. And I I just heard the one end of it. But when people got done talking, he said, I wrote here, I don't think so. I'm already tithing 25% of my income, and I just can't do any more. Living in a mobile home in a senior park, with not all he gave a fourth because his heart was in the work of the Lord his treasure his time and his talent were there too when it comes to investing our values excuse me When it comes to vesting our values, it begins with our heart and it ends with our heart. But in between, it is sustained by the investments that we make of our lives. How are you investing your life? Heavenly Father, I am challenged by that. How am I investing my life at my age, at my place? Say I've done my part right off into the sunset. Forget about my kids and my grandkids, my brothers and my sisters in Christ, and say I deserve a break. Father, I absolutely am convinced that we have purpose until the day we die, and that is to invest our lives in those things that have eternal value. And I would pray, Father, that though we spend so much of our time necessarily making a living, I would pray, Father, that that would be low on the totem pole of our priorities as it relates to the investment of our lives. I pray, Father, that you would make the challenges in the lives of each of us, not me. But I pray, Father, that by your Holy Spirit, you would bring each of us to a place of asking those questions, how am I investing my life for eternity? This I pray in Jesus' name, amen.